Chapter Seventeen of Father Goriot by Honoré de Balzac, translated by Ellen Marriage. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Bruce Peary. Chapter Seventeen. That evening at the opera, Rastignac chose his words carefully, lest he should give Madame de Nucingen needless alarm. Do not be anxious about him, she said, however, as soon as Eugène began. Our father has really a strong constitution, but this morning we gave him a shock. Our whole fortunes were in peril, so the thing was serious, you see. I could not live if your affection did not make me insensible to troubles that I should once have thought too hard to bear. At this moment I have but one fear left, but one misery to dread, to lose the love that has made me feel glad to live everything else is as nothing to me compared with our love i care for nothing else for you are all the world to me if i feel glad to be rich it is for your sake to my shame be it said i think of my lover before my father do you ask why i cannot tell you but all my life is in you my father gave me a heart but you have taught it to beat the whole world may condemn me what does it matter if i stand acquitted in your eyes for you have no right to think ill of me for the faults which a tyrannous love has forced me to commit for you do you think me an unnatural daughter oh no no one could help loving such a dear kind father as ours but how could i hide the inevitable consequences of our miserable marriages from him why did he allow us to marry when we did was it not his duty to think for us and foresee for us? Today I know he suffers as much as we do, but how can it be helped? And as for comforting him, we could not comfort him in the least. Our resignation would give him more pain and hurt him far more than complaints and upbraidings. There are times in life when everything turns to bitterness." Eugène was silent. The artless and sincere outpouring made an impression on him. Parisian women are often false, intoxicated with vanity, selfish and self-absorbed, frivolous and shallow. Yet of all women, when they love, they sacrifice their personal feelings to their passion. They rise but so much the higher for all the pettiness overcome in their nature, and become sublime then eugene was struck by the profound discernment and insight displayed by this woman in judging of natural affection when a privileged affection had separated and set her at a distance apart madame de nucingen was piqued by the silence what are you thinking about she asked i am thinking about what you said just now hitherto i have always felt sure that i cared far more for you than you did for me she smiled and would not give way to the happiness she felt lest their talk should exceed the conventional limits of propriety she had never heard the vibrating tones of a sincere and youthful love a few more words and she feared for her self-control eugene she said changing the conversation i wonder whether you know what has been happening all paris will go to madame de beauseance to-morrow the Rochefides and the Marquis d'Ajuda have agreed to keep the matter a profound secret, but to-morrow the king will sign the marriage contract, and your poor cousin, the Vicomtesse, knows nothing of it as yet. She cannot put off her ball, and the Marquis will not be there. 
people are wondering what will happen. The world laughs at baseness and connives at it, but this will kill Madame de Beauséant. Oh, no, said Delphine, smiling, you do not know that kind of woman. Why, all Paris will be there, and so shall I. I ought to go there for your sake. Perhaps, after all, it is one of those absurd reports that people set in circulation here. We shall know the truth to-morrow. Eugène did not return to the Maison Vauquer. He could not forego the pleasure of occupying his new rooms in the Rue d'Artois. Yesterday evening he had been obliged to leave Delphine soon after midnight, but that night it was Delphine who stayed with him until two o'clock in the morning. He rose late and waited for Madame de Nucingen, who came about noon to breakfast with him. Youth snatches eagerly at these rosy moments of happiness, and Eugène had almost forgotten Goriot's existence. The pretty things that surrounded him were growing familiar. This domestication in itself was one long festival for him, and Madame de Nucingen was there to glorify it all by her presence. It was four o'clock before they thought of Goriot and of how he had looked forward to the new life in that house. Eugène said that the old man ought to be moved at once, lest he should grow too ill to move. He left Delphine and hurried back to the lodging-house. Neither Father Goriot nor young Bianchon was in the dining-room with the others. "'Aha!' said the painter as Eugène came in. "'Father Goriot has broken down at last. Bianchon is upstairs with him. One of his daughters, the Comtesse de Restorama, came to see the old gentleman, and he would get up and go out, and made himself worse. Society is about to lose one of its brightest ornaments.' Rastignac sprang to the staircase. "'Hey, Monsieur Eugène! Monsieur Eugène, the mistress is calling you!' shouted Sylvie. "'It is this, sir,' said the widow. "'You and Monsieur Goriot should by rights have moved out on the 15th of February. That was three days ago. Today is the 18th. I ought really to be paid a month in advance, but if you will engage to pay for both I shall be quite satisfied.' "'Why can't you trust him?' Trust him, indeed. If the old gentleman went off his head and died, those daughters of his would not pay me a farthing, and his things won't fetch ten francs. This morning he went out with all the spoons and forks he has left. I don't know why. He had got himself up to look quite young, and, Lord forgive me, but I thought he had rouge on his cheeks. He looked quite young again. I will be responsible, said Eugène, shuddering with horror, for he foresaw the end. He climbed the stairs and reached Father Goriot's room. The old man was tossing on his bed. Bianchon was with him. "'Good evening, father,' said Eugène. The old man turned his glassy eyes on him, smiled gently, and said, "'How is she?' "'She is quite well. But how are you? There is nothing much the matter.' "'Don't tire him,' said Bianchon, drawing Eugène into a corner of the room. "'Well?' asked Rastignac. "'Nothing but a miracle can save him now. Cirrus congestion has set in. I have put on mustard plasters, and luckily he can feel them. They are acting.' "'Is it possible to move him?' "'Quite out of the question. He must stay where he is, and be kept as quiet as possible.' "'Dear Bianchon,' said Eugène, "'we will nurse him between us.' 
I have had the head physician round from my hospital to see him. And what did he say? He will give no opinion till tomorrow evening. He promised to look in again at the end of the day. Unluckily, the preposterous creature must needs go and do something foolish this morning. He will not say what it was. He is as obstinate as a mule. As soon as I begin to talk to him, he pretends not to hear, and lies as if he were asleep instead of answering, or if he opens his eyes, he begins to groan. Sometime this morning he went out on foot in the streets. Nobody knows where he went, and he took everything that he had of any value with him. He has been driving some confounded bargain, and it has been too much for his strength. One of his daughters has been here. Was it the Countess? asked Eugène. A tall, dark-haired woman with large bright eyes, slender figure, and little feet? Yes. Leave him to me for a bit, said Rastignac. I will make him confess. He will tell me all about it. And meantime I will get my dinner, but try not to excite him. There is still some hope left. All right. How they will enjoy themselves to-morrow, said Father Goriot when they were alone. They are going to a grand ball. What were you doing this morning, papa, to make yourself so poorly this evening that you have to stop in bed? Nothing. Did not Anastasie come to see you? demanded Rastignac. Yes, said Father Goriot. Well, then, don't keep anything from me. What more did she want of you? Oh, she was very miserable, he answered, gathering up all his strength to speak. It was this way, my boy. Since that affair of the diamonds, Nasie has not had a penny of her own. For this ball she had ordered a golden gown like a setting for a jewel. Her mantua-maker, a woman without a conscience, would not give her credit. So Nasie's waiting-woman advanced a thousand francs on account. Poor Nasie, reduced to such shifts, it cut me to the heart to think of it. But when Nasie's maid saw how things were between her master and mistress, she was afraid of losing her money, and came to an understanding with the dressmaker, and the woman refuses to send the ball-dress until the money is paid. The gown is ready, and the ball is to-morrow night. Nasie was in despair. She wanted to borrow my forks and spoons to pawn them. Her husband is determined that she shall go and wear the diamonds so as to contradict the stories that are told all over Paris. How can she go to that heartless scoundrel and say, I owe a thousand francs to my dressmaker, pay her for me? She cannot. I saw that myself. Delphine will be there, too, in a superb toilette, and Anastasie ought not to be outshone by her younger sister. And then she was drowned in tears, poor girl. I felt so humbled yesterday when I had not the twelve thousand francs that I would have given the rest of my miserable life to wipe out that wrong. You see, I could have borne anything once, but latterly this want of money has broken my heart. Oh, I did not do it by halves. I titivated myself up a bit, and went out and sold my spoons and forks and buckles for six hundred francs. Then I went to old Daddy Gobseck and sold a year's interest on my annuity for four hundred francs down. Ah, I can live on dry bread, as I did when I was a young man. If I have done it before, I can do it again. My Nessie shall have one happy evening, at any rate. She shall be smart, 
The banknote for a thousand francs is under my pillow. It warms me to have it lying there under my head, for it is going to make my poor Nazie happy. She can turn that bad girl Victoire out of the house. A servant that cannot trust her mistress. Did anyone ever hear the like? I shall be quite well to-morrow. Nazie is coming at ten o'clock. They must not think that I am ill, or they will not go to the ball. They will stop and take care of me. To-morrow Nessie will come and hold me in her arms, as if I were one of her children. Her kisses will make me well again. After all, I might have spent the thousand francs on physic. I would far rather give them to my little Nessie, who can charm all the pain away. At any rate, I am some comfort to her in her misery, and that makes up for my unkindness in buying an annuity. She is in the depths, and I cannot draw her out of them now. Oh, I will go into business again. I will buy wheat in Odessa. Out there wheat fetches a quarter of the price it sells for here. There is a law against the importation of green, but the good folk who made the law forgot to prohibit the introduction of wheat products and foodstuffs made from corn. Hey, hey, that struck me this morning. There is a fine trade to be done in starch. Eugène, watching the old man's face, thought that his friend was light-headed. Come, he said, do not talk any more. You must rest. Just then Bianchon came up, and Eugène went down to dinner. The two students sat up with him that night, relieving each other in turn. Bianchon brought up his medical books and studied. Eugène wrote letters home to his mother and sisters. Next morning Bianchon thought the symptoms more hopeful, but the patient's condition demanded continual attention, which the two students alone were willing to give, a task impossible to describe in the squeamish phraseology of the epoch. Leeches must be applied to the wasted body. The poultices and hot foot baths and other details of the treatment required the physical strength and devotion of the two young men. Madame de Restaud did not come, but she sent a messenger for the money. I expected she would come herself, but it would have been a pity for her to come. She would have been anxious about me, said the father, and to all appearances he was well content. At seven o'clock that evening Therese came with a letter from Delphine. "'What are you doing, dear friend? I have been loved for a very little while, and I am neglected already? In the confidences of heart and heart I have learned to know your soul. You are too noble not to be faithful for ever, for you know that love, with all its infinite subtle changes of feeling, is never the same. Once you said, as we were listening to the prayer in Mose in Egito, for some it is the monotony of a single note.' For others it is the infinite of sound. Remember that I am expecting you this evening to take me to Madame de Beauséant's ball. Everyone knows now that the king signed Monsieur d'Ajuda's marriage contract this morning, and the poor vicomtesse knew nothing of it until two o'clock this afternoon. All Paris will flock to her house, of course, just as a crowd fills the Place de Greve to see an execution. It is horrible, is it not, to go out of curiosity to see if she will hide her anguish, and whether she will die courageously. I certainly should not go, my friend, if I had been at her house before, 
but of course she will not receive society any more after this and all my efforts would be in vain my position is a very unusual one and besides i am going there partly on your account i am waiting for you if you are not beside me in less than two hours i do not know whether i could forgive such treason rastignac took up a pen and wrote i am waiting till the doctor comes to know if there is any hope of your father's life he is lying dangerously ill i will come and bring you the news but i am afraid it may be a sentence of death when i come you can decide whether you can go to the ball yours a thousand times at half-past eight the doctor arrived he did not take a very hopeful view of the case but thought that there was no immediate danger improvements and relapses might be expected and the good man's life and reason hung in the balance it would be better for him to die at once the doctor said as he took leave eugene left goriot to bianchon's care and went to carry the sad news to madame de nucingen family feeling lingered in her and this must put an end for the present to her plans of amusement tell her to enjoy her evening as if nothing had happened cried goriot he had been lying in a sort of stupor but he suddenly sat upright as eugene went out eugene half heartbroken entered delphine's her hair had been dressed she wore her dancing slippers she had only to put on her ball dress but when the artist is giving the finishing stroke to his creation the last touches require more time than the whole groundwork of the picture why you are not dressed she cried madame your father my father again she exclaimed breaking in upon him you need not teach me what is due to my father i have known my father this long while not a word eugene i will hear what you have to say when you are dressed my carriage is waiting take it go round to your rooms and dress therese has put out everything in readiness for you come back as soon as you can we will talk about my father on the way to madame de beauseance we must go early if we have to wait our turn in a row of carriages we shall be lucky if we get there by eleven o'clock madame quick not a word she cried darting into her dressing-room for a necklace do go monsieur eugene or you will vex madame said therese hurrying him away and eugene was too horror-stricken by this elegant parricide to resist he went to his rooms and dressed sad thoughtful and dispirited the world of paris was like an ocean of mud for him just then and it seemed that whoever set foot in that black mire must needs sink into it up to the chin their crimes are paltry said eugene to himself vautrin was greater he had seen society in its three great phases obedience struggle and revolt the family the world and vautrin and he hesitated in his choice obedience was dull revolt impossible struggle hazardous his thoughts wandered back to the home circle he thought of the quiet uneventful life the pure happiness of the days spent among those who loved him there those loving and beloved beings passed their lives in obedience to the natural laws of the hearth and in that obedience found a deep and constant serenity 
unvexed by torments such as these. Yet for all his good impulses, he could not bring himself to make profession of the religion of pure souls to Delphine, nor to prescribe the duties of piety to her in the name of love. His education had begun to bear its fruits. He loved selfishly already. Besides, his tact had discovered to him the real nature of Delphine. He divined instinctively that she was capable of stepping over her father's corpse to go to the ball, and within himself he felt that he had neither the strength of mind to play the part of mentor, nor the strength of character to vex her, nor the courage to leave her to go alone. She would never forgive me for putting her in the wrong over it he said to himself. Then he turned the doctor's dictum over in his mind. He tried to believe that Goriot was not so dangerously ill as he had imagined, and ended by collecting together a sufficient quantity of traitorous excuses for Delphine's conduct. She did not know how ill her father was. The kind old man himself would have made her go to the ball if she had gone to see him. So often it happens that this one or that stands condemned by the social laws that govern family relations, and yet there are peculiar circumstances in the case, differences of temperament, divergent interests, innumerable complications of family life, that excuse the apparent offence. Eugène did not wish to see too clearly. He was ready to sacrifice his conscience to his mistress. Within the last few days his whole life had undergone a change. Woman had entered into his world and thrown it into chaos. Family claims dwindled away before her. She had appropriated all his being to her uses. Rastignac and Delphine found each other at a crisis in their lives when their union gave them the most poignant bliss. Their passion, so long proved, had only gained in strength by the gratified desire that often extinguishes passion. This woman was his, and Eugène recognized that not until then had he loved her. Perhaps love is only gratitude for pleasure. This woman, vile or sublime, he adored for the pleasure she had brought as her dower, and Delphine loved Rastignac as Tantalus would have loved some angel who had satisfied his hunger and quenched the burning thirst in his parched throat. "'Well,' said Madame de Nucingen, when he came back in evening dress, "'how is my father?' "'Very dangerously ill,' he answered. "'If you will grant me a proof of your affections, we will just go in to see him on the way.' very well she said yes but afterwards dear eugene do be nice and don't preach to me come they set out eugene said nothing for a while what is it now she asked i can hear the death-rattle in your father's throat he said almost angrily and with the hot indignation of youth he told the story of madame de restaud's vanity and cruelty of her father's final act of self-sacrifice that had brought about this struggle between life and death, of the price that had been paid for Anastasie's golden embroideries. Delphine cried. "'I shall look frightful,' she thought. She dried her tears. "'I will nurse my father,' 
I will not leave his bedside, she said aloud. Ah, now you are as I would have you, exclaimed Rastignac. The lamps of five hundred carriages lit up the darkness about the Hotel de Beauséant. A gendarme, in all the glory of his uniform, stood on either side of the brightly lighted gateway. The great world was flocking thither that night, in its eager curiosity to see the great lady at the moment of her fall, and the rooms on the ground floor were already full to overflowing when Madame de Nucingen and Rastignac appeared. Never since Louis the Fourteenth tore her lover away from La Grande Mademoiselle, and the whole court hastened to visit that unfortunate princess, had a disastrous love affair made such a sensation in Paris. But the youngest daughter of the almost royal house of Burgundy had risen proudly above her pain, and moved till the last moment like a queen in this world. Its vanities had always been valueless for her, save in so far as they contributed to the triumph of her passion. The salons were filled with the most beautiful women in Paris, resplendent in their toilettes and radiant with smiles. Ministers and ambassadors, the most distinguished men at court, men bedizened with decorations, stars, and ribbons, men who bore the most illustrious names in France, had gathered about the Vicomtesse. The music of the orchestra vibrated in wave after wave of sound from the golden ceiling of the palace, now made desolate for its queen. Madame de Beauséant stood at the door of the first salon to receive the guests who were styled her friends. She was dressed in white and wore no ornament in the plates of hair braided about her head. Her face was calm. There was no sign there of pride, nor of pain, nor of joy that she did not feel. No one could read her soul. She stood there like some Niobe carved in marble. For a few intimate friends there was a tinge of satire in her smile, but no scrutiny saw any change in her, nor had she looked otherwise in the days of the glory of her happiness. The most callous of her guests admired her, as young Rome applauded some gladiator who could die smiling. It seemed as if society had adorned itself for a last audience of one of its sovereigns. "'I was afraid that you would not come,' she said to Rastignac. "'Madame,' he said in an unsteady voice, taking her speech as a reproach, "'I shall be the last to go. That is why I am here.' "'Good,' she said, and she took his hand. "'You are perhaps the only one I can trust here among all these. Oh, my friend, when you love, love a woman whom you are sure that you can love always.' never forsake a woman. She took Rastignac's arm and went towards a sofa in the card-room. I want you to go to the Marquis, she said. Jacques, my footman, will go with you. He has a letter that you will take. I am asking the Marquis to give my letters back to me. He will give them all up, I like to think that. When you have my letters, go up to my room with them. Someone shall bring me word." She rose to go to meet the Duchesse de Langeais, her most intimate friend, who had come like the rest of the world. Rastignac went. He asked for the Marquis d'Ajuda at the Hotel Rochefide, feeling certain that the latter would be spending his evening there, and so it proved. 
the marquis went to his own house with rastignac and gave a casket to the student saying as he did so they are all there he seemed as if he was about to say something to eugene to ask about the ball or the vicomtesse perhaps he was on the brink of the confession that even then he was in despair and knew that his marriage had been a fatal mistake but a proud gleam shone in his eyes and with deplorable courage he kept his noblest feelings a secret do not even mention my name to her my dear eugene he grasped rastignac's hand sadly and affectionately and turned away from him eugene went back to the hotel beauseant the servant took him to the vicomtesse's room there were signs there of preparations for a journey he sat down by the fire fixed his eyes on the cedar wood casket and fell into deep mournful musings madame de beauseant loomed large in these imaginings like a goddess in the iliad ah my friend said the vicomtesse she crossed the room and laid her hand on rastignac's shoulder he saw the tears in his cousin's uplifted eyes saw that one hand was raised to take the casket and that the fingers of the other trembled suddenly she took the casket put it in the fire and watched it burn they are dancing she said they all came very early but death will be long in coming hush my friend and she laid a finger on rastignac's lips seeing that he was about to speak i shall never see paris again i am taking my leave of the world at five o'clock this morning i shall set out on my journey i mean to bury myself in the remotest part of normandy i have had very little time to make my arrangements since three o'clock this afternoon i have been busy signing documents setting my affairs in order there was no one whom i could send to she broke off he was sure to be again she broke off the weight of her sorrow was more than she could bear in such moments as these everything is agony and some words are impossible to utter and so i counted upon you to do me this last piece of service this evening she said i should like to give you some pledge of friendship i shall often think of you you have seemed to me to be kind and noble fresh-hearted and true in this world where such qualities are seldom found i should like you to think sometimes of me stay she said glancing about her there is this box that has held my gloves every time i opened it before going to a ball or to the theatre i used to feel that i must be beautiful because i was so happy and i never touched it except to lay some gracious memory in it there is so much of my old self in it of a madame de beauseant who now lives no longer will you take it i will leave directions that it is to be sent to you in the rue d'artois madame de nucingen looked very charming this evening eugene you must love her perhaps we may never see each other again my friend but be sure of this that i shall pray for you who have been kind to me now let us go downstairs people shall not think that i am weeping i have all time and eternity before me and where i am going i shall be alone and no one will ask me the reason of my tears one last look round first she stood for a moment 
then she covered her eyes with her hands for an instant dashed away the tears bathed her face with cold water and took the student's arm let us go she said this suffering endured with such noble fortitude shook eugene with a more violent emotion than he had felt before they went back to the ballroom and madame de beauseant went through the rooms on eugene's arm the last delicately gracious act of a gracious woman in another moment he saw the sisters madame de restaud and madame de nucingen the countess shone in all the glory of her magnificent diamonds every stone must have scorched like fire she was never to wear them again strong as love and pride might be in her she found it difficult to meet her husband's eyes the sight of her was scarcely calculated to lighten rastignac's sad thoughts through the blaze of those diamonds he seemed to see the wretched pallet bed on which father goriot was lying the vicomtesse misread his melancholy she withdrew her hand from his arm come she said i must not deprive you of a pleasure eugene was soon claimed by delphine she was delighted by the impression that she had made and eager to lay at her lover's feet the homage she had received in this new world in which she hoped to live and move henceforth what do you think of nazie she asked him she has discounted everything even her own father's death said rastignac towards four o'clock in the morning the rooms began to empty a little later the music ceased and the duchesse de langeais and rastignac were left in the great ballroom the vicomtesse who thought to find the student there alone came back there at last she had taken leave of monsieur de beauseant who had gone off to bed saying again as he went it is a great pity my dear to shut yourself up at your age pray stay among us madame de beauseant saw the duchesse and in spite of herself an exclamation broke from her i saw how it was clara said madame de langeais you are going from among us and you will never come back but you must not go until you have heard me until we have understood each other she took her friend's arm and they went together into the next room there the duchess looked at her with tears in her eyes she held her friend in close embrace and kissed her cheek i could not let you go without a word dearest the remorse would have been too hard to bear you can count upon me as surely as upon yourself you have shown yourself great this evening i feel that i am worthy of our friendship and i mean to prove myself worthy of it i have not always been kind i was in the wrong forgive me dearest i wish i could unsay anything that may have hurt you i take back those words one common sorrow has brought us together again for i do not know which of us is the more miserable monsieur de montriveau was not here to-night do you understand what that means none of those who saw you to-night clara will ever forget you i mean to make one last effort if i fail i shall go into a convent clara where are you going into normandy to courcelles i shall love and pray there until the day when god shall take me from this world monsieur de rastignac called the vicomtesse in a tremulous voice 
remembering that the young man was waiting there. The student knelt to kiss his cousin's hand. "'Good-bye, Antoinette,' said Madame de Beauséant. "'May you be happy.' She turned to the student. "'You are young,' she said. "'You have some beliefs still left. I have been privileged, like some dying people, to find sincere and reverent feeling in those about me as I take my leave of this world.' It was nearly five o'clock that morning when Rastignac came away. He had put Madame de Beauséant into her travelling carriage, and received her last farewells, spoken amid fast-falling tears, for no greatness is so great that it can rise above the laws of human affection or live beyond the jurisdiction of pain, as certain demagogues would have the people believe. Eugène returned on foot to the Maison Vauquer through the cold and darkness. His education was nearly complete. "'There is no hope for poor Father Goriot,' said Bianchon as Rastignac came into the room. Eugène looked for a while at the sleeping man, then he turned to his friend. "'Dear fellow, you are content with the modest career you have marked out for yourself. Keep to it. I am in hell, and I must stay there. Believe everything that you hear said of the world.' Nothing is too impossibly bad. No juvenile could paint the horrors hidden away under the covering of gems and gold. At two o'clock in the afternoon, Bianchon came to wake Rastignac and begged him to take charge of Goriot, who had grown worse as the day wore on. The medical student was obliged to go out. Poor old man, he has not two days to live, maybe not many hours, he said. But we must do our utmost, all the same, to fight the disease. It will be a very troublesome case, and we shall want money. We can nurse him between us, of course, but for my own part I have not a penny. I have turned out his pockets and rummaged through his drawers. Result, nix. I asked him about it while his mind was clear, and he told me he had not a farthing of his own. What have you? I have twenty francs left, said Rastignac but I will take them to the roulette table. I shall be sure to win. And if you lose? Then I shall go to his sons-in-law and his daughters and ask them for money. And suppose they refuse, Bianchon retorted. The most pressing thing just now is not really money. We must put mustard poultices as hot as they can be made on his feet and legs. If he calls out, there is still some hope for him. You know how to set about doing it, and besides, Christophe will help you. I am going round to the dispensary to persuade them to let us have the things we want on credit. It is a pity that we could not move him to the hospital. Poor fellow, he would be better there. Well, come along. I leave you in charge. You must stay with him till I come back. The two young men went back to the room where the old man was lying. Eugène was startled at the change in Goriot's face, so livid, distorted, and feeble. "'How are you, papa?' he said, bending over the pallet bed. Goriot turned his dull eyes upon Eugène, looked at him attentively, and did not recognize him. It was more than the student could bear. The tears came into his eyes. "'Bianchon, ought we to have the curtains put up in the windows?' No, the temperature and the light do not affect him now. It would be a good thing for him if he felt heat or cold. 
but we must have a fire in any case to make tisanes and heat the other things i will send round a few sticks they will last till we can have in some firewood i burned all the bark fuel you had left as well as his poor man yesterday and during the night the place is so damp that the water stood in drops on the walls i could hardly get the room dry christophe came in and swept the floor but the place is like a stable i had to burn juniper the smell was something horrible mon dieu said rastignac to think of those daughters of his one moment if he asks for something to drink give him this said the house student pointing to a large white jar if he begins to groan and the belly feels hot and hard to the touch you know what to do get christophe to help you if he should happen to grow excited and begin to talk a good deal and even to ramble in his talk do not be alarmed it would not be a bad symptom but send christophe to the hospice cochin our doctor my chum or i will come and apply moxes we had a great consultation this morning while you were asleep a surgeon a pupil of gaul's came and our house surgeon and the head physician from the hotel dieu those gentlemen considered that the symptoms were very unusual and interesting the case must be carefully watched for it throws a light on several obscure and rather important scientific problems one of the authorities says that if there is more pressure of serum on one or other portion of the brain it should affect his mental capacities in such and such directions so if he should talk notice very carefully what kind of ideas his mind seems to run on whether memory or penetration or the reasoning faculties are exercised whether sentiments or practical questions fill his thoughts whether he makes forecasts or dwells on the past in fact you must be prepared to give an accurate report of him it is quite likely that the extravasation fills the whole brain in which case he will die in the imbecile state in which he is lying now you cannot tell anything about these mysterious nervous diseases suppose the crash came here said bianchon touching the back of the head very strange things have been known to happen the brain sometimes partially recovers and death is delayed or the congested matter may pass out of the brain altogether through channels which can only be determined by a post-mortem examination there is an old man at the hospital for incurables an imbecile patient in his case the effusion has followed the direction of the spinal cord he suffers horrid agonies but he lives did they enjoy themselves it was father goriot who spoke he had recognized eugene oh he thinks of nothing but his daughters said bianchon scores of times last night he said to me they are dancing now she has her dress he called for them by their names he made me cry the devil take it calling with that tone in his voice for delphine my little delphine and nazie upon my word said the medical student it was enough to make anyone burst out crying delphine said the old man she is there isn't she i knew she was there and his eyes sought the door i am going down now to tell sylvie to get the poultices ready said bianchon they ought to go on at once end of chapter seventeen